Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. If you or someone you know has struggled with substance use disorder, where would you go for help? State Senator Saoud Anwar recently highlighted the lack of beds to treat patients for substance use at state-run facilities like the Connecticut Valley Hospital and its Blue Hills campus. Today, where we live, Senator Anwar joins us to talk about this issue as overdose deaths in our state continue to grow. Data from Kaiser Family Foundation show deaths due to drug overdose in Connecticut nearly doubled from 2015 to 2020. Coming up, we hear from the Wheeler Clinic about the lack of enough outpatient services to meet demand in our state. President and CEO Sabrina Trochi says there are too few clinicians to see patients, which also leads to a backlog. Now, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first again is Dr. Saud Anwar, who's a state senator, and he's a chair of the Children's Committee as well as uh, the public health acting chair of the public health committee. Uh, Dr. Anwar, Senator Anwar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy, for having me. Thank you. Now, I mentioned uh, you recently visited Blue Hills and Connecticut Valley to assess the shortage of beds for patients with substance use disorder. Uh, What prompted you to visit? What were you hearing? Well, um, I had serious concerns because uh, the number of beds that we have uh, are not increasing. The number of staff that we have at the Blue Hills facility for detox have been more or less stagnant. And uh, this is a state-run facility. This takes care of the most vulnerable people in our state. And unfortunately, we have too many beds which are non-functional. And it appears that uh, the pathway and, and the progress to hiring more staff is not as effective and it's not showing the results. Um, and it's a crisis situation in our state. And in, to have a state facility not functional uh, raised uh, deep concerns for me. And I visited them to see firsthand what were the causes. When we talk about the treatment that uh, they would be getting, uh, tell us more about that. And how many people are being rejected for services because of that shortage? Well, um, that uh, uh, they claim uh, at this time that uh, they are not getting as many people reach out to them. But if you look at their website, they have no beds available or one bed available every few weeks or so. So um, even though they have limited number of beds, they are actually uh, uh, far more capacity if we had the staff. Um, and as a result, because on their website or on their phones, when people hear that there's no bed available, they try to go to another facility. And as a result, we don't even know how many of those patients who could get treatment are uh, being missed. 
Now, when we think about, you know, the, the different places people go for help, uh, you know, we're just focusing on some of the state-run facilities, but, you know, you work at Manchester Memorial Hospital, and I understand that even a shortage of beds for patients uh, who are presenting with overdose symptoms, uh, while no one is turned away when they show up at the hospital, tell us what you're seeing. Well, um, as an intensive care unit doctor, I see the the truly heartbreaking part of the lack of appropriate treatments. Uh, we at times are seeing people coming in with overdoses, uh, with the cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, uh, because some of these medicines make the person stop breathing. So, and many times we've seen individuals who get brain death or actual uh, uh, death as well. And it's, it's heartbreaking because uh, every single one of them are preventable. Um, so, and the burden of the illness has been increasing over time. Uh, just, just by the end of the day today, we will lose four people in our state to the opioid alone. Mm. And you're seeing repeat visits by some individuals, Sandra Anwar? Yeah, so Lucy, that's the, the other part of the painful process that we are seeing is when we use substance use disorder, we patient goes through the critical care management, they go through all the treatments for many days and they go through detox. And once they get better, they are well enough, uh, there is not a good place to send them for rehabilitation. Many of the times they're interested to get rehab, but because we don't have enough space or enough coverage for the insurance industry, that results in that individual going back to the community only to return back again. So it's again part of our challenge we have is that we need to address this otherwise this revolving door is uh, not healthy for patients or for our healthcare system you're hearing state senator dr saud anwar acting chair of the public health committee also chair of the children's committee as we talk about a shortage beds uh, at some of the state-run facilities for people with substance use disorder and you know what it looks like for those who end up coming to hospital ERs uh, for help especially if they're overdosing um, and what community supports are available what are some of the the barriers to that care you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live uh, Kathy tweeted to us that you know she was curious how long are the waits for intake appointments when someone first seeks help? Uh, what what do you know, Dr. Anwar? So for the outpatient, uh, it again remains uh, weeks to months before somebody can get uh, uh, treatment. Some of the facilities say that you can walk in and be seen right away. And, and then there are some of those options, but they are not as many options as the needs are. Mm. And for those, when we think about how different insurance plans um, are available, depending on, you know, someone's coverage, you know, what's happening there in terms of, you know, increasing bed capacity or the incentives of, to have uh, hospitals do that to send or send Anwar? Um, so, uh, Lucy, this is another area that uh, needs a lot of opportunity. About uh, one third of the patients who need help approximately uh, they get Medicaid, but the rest of them are on, on uh, commercial insurance. Uh, there is a need for uh, payment reform because uh, the lack of payment, lack of coverage is resulting in the facilities not being able to sustain or create more beds. And uh, right now, despite uh, various laws and, and efforts, we are not seeing the same amount of uh, support and help 
financial uh, incentives for uh, facilities to create uh, inpatient as well as outpatient management services for patients. When we think about uh, the type of information uh, that the policymakers are asking uh, insurance companies to provide, you know, the latest uh, 2022 Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act report to Congress, I understand there were 156 letters issued to insurance plans requesting what's called a comparative analysis for non-quantitative treatment details. And that report states none of those analyses reviewed to date contain sufficient information. Then there had to be follow-up and 26 plans have agreed to now make changes. Uh, producer Sujata Srinivasan also contacted the Connecticut Insurance Department for details, and we received this statement from Jim Carson, quote, the department found only certain instances where documentation was insufficient to demonstrate 100% compliance. Again, he was referring to this comparative analysis for non-quantitative treatment. So parse that down for us, uh, Senator Anwar, and, and respond uh, to that for us. Uh, yes. Um, look, um, if somebody goes in with a broken bone, you get the top-notch treatment in our state, you're taken care of, and the insurance industry pays, you get an orthopedic surgeon, take care of it. When you go in with an invisible injury, we do not treat it in with the same respect and focus as we do for the visible ones. And as a result, because of the invisible challenges, uh, which behavioral health and mental health and substance use uh, disorders have, results in uh, not only the family and the individual not recognizing it, the internal barriers, but the external barriers of the society um, and, and the healthcare systems not doing as much. Um, that's the reason uh, the federal government and our state government uh, had uh, put in laws to make sure that there's parity for mental health issues as well as for the same level as for physical health. Uh, yeah, unless we put them at the same level and same level of urgency, we are not going to be able to address this. And, and I'm, I'm honored uh, in 2019, I was a co-sponsor of the bill, which has become a law to try and make sure that every industry insurance company is uh, having a same level of parity for mental health and behavioral health and substance use um, has been a law in our state and is also a federal. And just like you alluded to, uh, that is not being followed by the insurance industry uh, the way it uh, is intended to be. And, and as a result, it leaves many of our patients without the support, without the help that they need. Uh, when we spoke to the Connecticut Insurance Department, it told us it had not received any complaints currently, though in the past, the department has received individual complaints regarding substance uh, use uh, claims, all of which have since been resolved. Uh, because you had mentioned that 2019 law, insurance insurers not complying, what are your next steps, Senator Anwar? Um, I, I do think that uh, we have a responsibility legislatively to continue to uh, pursue it at multiple levels. One is the education process of the community of their uh, rights about this issue, but also regulation and uh, making sure that the industry is required uh, to follow the law and then there would be consequences in the absence of such law. Uh, look, the insurance department is following the laws and they're just expected to take care of that, but we can strengthen the laws even going forward uh, to make sure that uh, the industry is not relaxing on, on their end of their responsibilities. Mm. 
you know, I feel like I've been talking about substance use disorder, the rise in overdose deaths for some time now, long before the pandemic, uh, Dr. Anwar, when you see uh, those numbers increasing, you know, still having these conversations about whether there's lack of staff to help uh, people or a shortage of hospital beds, it must be very frustrating for you, you know, your first job being a medical doctor. It is heartbreaking because uh, uh, the, the deaths that I'm talking about, many of those individuals uh, have died with me providing them care. And, and I'm the one at times holding the hands of the loved ones who are left uh, uh, and, and wondering what happened. And, and the, the grief that uh, encounters and the potential of each individual, um, they are capable of having a complete, full, perfect life. And, and this is why at times to my students, the residents and medical students, I say that this is not an illness of an individual. It's the illness of our society for not being able to prevent this, not being able to identify this and not being able to treat this. And as a result, we are losing some of the young people or older individuals uh, to some of these preventable conditions. So um, this is an urgent issue. Uh, we have lost about over 1,500 people in the last year, and, and each one of them was a preventable death. And we owe it to, to make sure that we can uh, work hard and then work smart to prevent each and every one that we can prevent from going in that direction. Again, you're hearing State Senator Dr. Saud Anwar, Acting Chair of the Public Health Committee, Chair of the Children's Committee, as we talk about uh, supports for those uh, struggling with substance use disorder. Coming up, we're going to hear more about the community supports in place. Not everyone needs inpatient treatment. So what are the outpatient uh, resources out there? Our number, 888-720-9677. And I wanted to just give out this number for people who are looking for help, whether it's an assessment center, maybe medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. We'll hear more about that coming up. There's a and residential treatment as well as detox. There's something called an access line. Um, it prioritizes transportation services for detox and also arranging transportation for DEMAS, substance use disorder, residential treatment. Here's the number, 1-800-563-4086. Again, 1-800-563-4086. We'll be back, and we're going to be hearing from Wheeler after this short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the lack of hospital beds for the treatment of substance use disorder in our state. Also efforts to reduce repeat ER visits for overdose. With us on Zoom is State Senator Dr. Saud Anwar. And joining us now on the phone is Sabrina Troki, who's president and CEO of Wheeler. Sabrina, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I had mentioned before the break, uh, not everyone requires inpatient care. And so I'm wondering if you can briefly remind our listeners about Wheeler and the services you provide. Sure. Wheeler is a nonprofit community organization that provides comprehensive primary care, behavioral health, substance abuse, child welfare, early childhood, um, and wellness recovery services for children, adolescents, and adults across Connecticut. We um, annually serve over 50,000 children, adults, and families. Through our community health and wellness centers, which are located in Hartford, New Britain, Waterbury, Bristol, and Plainville, we offer integrated uh, primary care and behavioral health services, including outpatient, intensive outpatient, psychiatric supports, and medication-assisted treatments for substance use disorders. Thank you, Sabrina. And you mentioned medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. I think that's what it's known as. And so that's an outpatient service. You know, there is an issue there when it, when people are trying to seek help, and maybe they this is the the route that they're going. Um, it's evidence-based, uh, but that requires a prescription, I believe, from a psychiatrist. And so, uh, what are uh, people um, experiencing because of that? So um, it, it requires a prescription from a medical provider, um, and the the issue we're we're currently facing, and it's a it's a national workforce crisis um, issue, is um, related to access to psychiatrists, to medical providers, to clinical um, clinicians. So at a time where we're seeing an increased dramatic uh, need for these services, we're facing an unprecedented workforce crisis at this at the same time. And so, um, I, you know, just speaking for Wheeler, over the last 12 months, we've seen over a 25% increase in patients presenting for behavioral health and addiction services. During that time, um, we're probably um, anywhere from 18 to 10 percent, depending on, on, on the time period, understaffed. And those are critical psychiatric positions, medical positions, and uh, behavioral health clinical positions that we are struggling to, 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 to fill and, um, and to keep staff within those positions. That sounds uh, really troubling. When I talked about medication-assisted treatment uh, or MAT, uh, your uh, staff is trained for that. So people that are um, looking for that um, don't need to rely on a psychiatrist to give them a prescription. But you mentioned there's a staff shortage, and so that uh, plays a part in in potential delays, uh, Sabrina? It it does play um a, a, a it does have a role in 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 being able to offer immediate access we do at Wheeler um, because we are a pri- an integrated primary care and behavioral health provider we're fortunate that in addition to psychiatrists we have um, family practice medical providers we have 
advanced uh, practice nurses in family uh, medicine and in psychiatry to be able to ensure that um, that we can meet the demand for medication-assisted treatments. So within our system, regardless if you're a primary care provider a psychiatric mm-hmm. provider, um, you you must be credentialed and certified and have the certification to be able to prescribe the medication-assisted treatments like buprenorphine and Suboxone and Vivitrol. Mm-hmm. And that State provides Senator. us more... That, that that does provide us more um, more staffing um, resources to be able to meet patients when they present, um, and, and that's the most critical piece. Um, when an individual presents for care, we can't turn them away. Um, we need to see that patient. We need to begin the medications that day um, because we know if we don't begin the, pa- the patient on the needed medications today, the likelihood of that patient going back into the community, back into the streets, and using illicit substances is very high. Right. State Senator Saud Amwara is still with us. Uh, you know, when we hear Sabrina talk about the the shortages that they're experiencing at these outpatient uh, centers, Senator Anwar, there was that that package of bills signed into law that addresses uh, the mental health crisis, including, I believe, uh, efforts uh, to bring uh, out of state clinicians uh, to our state. Can you talk about that, Senator Anwar? Yes, yes, and and, and I, I do want to thank. Uh, um, the work that everybody does at Wheeler Clinic uh, uh, under the, your leadership as well. Um, uh, but but I, I just uh, want to mention the fact that uh, we got to this point where workforce decided to move to other areas because this is a tough industry. And, and when there is not enough support and financial benefits to people who are doing hard work, they move on to other areas. And, and what we have tried to do as a state this time in our bills, which include uh, the House Bill 5001 and Senate Bill 2, and partially Senate Bill 1, to actually have incentives for individuals to uh, move into these careers. So we needed to have a long-term strategy. The long-term strategy is to give incentives to our uh, young individuals or people who are looking at second careers to have benefits and support um, if they move towards uh, becoming a specialist in behavioral health and mental health uh, issues, but substance use related management at the entire spectrum, including psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed social workers, mm-hmm. and, and all the support that goes along with that. Um, so that's something that's very important, but also in the interim, because we need help right away way. Uh, we have made sure that there is uh, opportunity for uh, uh, personnel from other states to have uh, uh, the same uh, level of licensing uh, where we would be able to allow them to work in our state uh, remotely or in person. And and, and that's uh, the reciprocity uh, agreements that we are working on. Uh, and these were part of our bills uh, that are going to help uh, begin to help to get the workforce uh, for our sub- facilities like uh, uh, Wheeler Health uh, as well, Wheeler Clinic. When you mentioned incentives, uh, something that um, that I wanted to highlight was also loan forgiveness for behavioral health providers. So when you're talking about young people going into this field, uh, Senator Anwar, that will certainly help. Absolutely. I, I think the cost of uh, higher education is uh, a barrier for people making choices. And if we were to become partner, as a state has become a partner, along with the 
federal government to provide uh, loan forgiveness. We are hoping that incentive would make uh, people come more towards this field and, and, and help out. And it's very rewarding because uh, uh, not only financially, but the emotional reward of changing the trajectory of somebody's care, somebody's health, somebody's well-being and saving that life is, is uh, really uh, uh, worthwhile for people to seriously consider this. Mm. Uh, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sabrina Troki still with us, President and CEO of Wheeler. Sabrina, I wanted you to respond uh, to uh, these new laws in place to help behavioral health, especially when you outlined you know, the shortages in staff to provide this care. We are absolutely thankful for um, Senator Anwar and all of the efforts that um, that took place in, in this last legislative session. We do believe many of these pieces will be very helpful um, as we continue to, to address the workforce issues. Um, one of the pieces, though, that, that, that we continue to, um, to struggle with is in order to engage and to recruit um, the workforce, we need to be able to provide competitive wages and benefits. And, um, and many nonprofit organizations heavily rely on, um, on, on state reimbursements in order for that to happen. And so, um, you know, while we're addressing some of the um, opportunities to recruit and to try to keep folks in, in Connecticut, I also think we, we need to start to look at some of our reimbursements for these services because um, in order to, to, to ensure we can recruit, we're going to have to be able to take those steps. And, um, you know, I, I've had a number of staff who, because of the, the burnout, so as um, we worked throughout the pandemic, we were in person, and so a number of our staff were burned out, and they've completely left the behavior health or health arena and have gone into um, private sector work where um, potentially the pay is more for less complex um, and less stressful type of work. And so we, we, we do need to think about what we can continue to do to ensure that we can keep our staff. Thank you for explaining that, Sabrina. You know, Kathy had tweeted earlier as well about, you know, why we still have a system that's set up only to manage crises. Can you respond to that? So I, I, I would say that there are a number of processes in place to, to try to intervene earlier. Um, you know, one of those is, is the access line. So the substance abuse access line is available not only to individuals seeking care, but available to family members, friends, loved ones who, who may think that, uh, who may have a, a sense that something is wrong with a loved one, but don't, doesn't know what steps they, um, should take. Um, and so we try to encourage folks um, to utilize that line to gather information and to be able to understand what you can do to intervene earlier and how to connect individuals to the services and supports they need within their communities. Um, so there are a number of those pieces. Um, I, I, I know uh, there are also crisis um, 
community crisis intervention programs that once again try to inter intervene earlier with individuals who may be exposing um, uh, signs and symptoms of, of behavioral health, of substance use, and how do we get them connected to services earlier. But I, I do agree uh, we need to continue to focus on uh, further investments in earlier prevention, earlier intervention services. Senator Anwar, I'm sure you also have an answer to that question about a system set up to manage crises. Yes, uh, I think one of the the part of a bill that we worked on was having a 24-hour across-the-state coverage for mobile crisis units. Um, and this is more focused on the children and adolescents, but uh, uh, the 211 system uh, is the way to access uh, the services. Um, it is uh, very simple. We do have individuals who are uh, the, 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 the uh, operators available have increased. The focus on this area is much more. The waiting time is less. And, and, and with those investments, uh, literally 24-7 coverage across the state is something that is going to help people get into the system and get hooked with a existing uh, professional organization like the Wheeler Clinic and others who are actually providing the care. So uh, that is the entry point for individuals who are not yet in the system. Um, and I, I feel that that's uh, one way to get it. And we also wanna make sure that the primary cares, the pediatricians, their offices will have social work support and then try to connect them with the psychiatry services so that uh, there is no wrong door for people to um, overcome the stigma and the internal and external barriers and recognize that this is part of life and this is something that can be treated. And then having and asking for help is very important and then seek that help and the state is getting better to provide that help. You mentioned primary care, and this question's for Sabrina Trochi at Wheeler. Dan tweeted that family physicians are also able to prescribe medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, um, and like other medical concerns, your first stop can be your own trusted family doctor. Can you weigh in there? Sure. Um, in, in order, any physician um, is able to uh, obtain the waiver, the federal waiver that is needed to prescribe uh, buprenorphine, suboxone. And um, what we often find is that um, when you look up the registry in Connecticut, there are quite a few doctors who have obtained the federal waiver. Um, and then um, when you look at how many are practicing and prescribing, that number does reduce. Um, and, it, it, you know, within our system, our, our physicians, our um, APRN providers, medical providers are comfortable in prescribing because we have an integrated team approach. So we have psychiatrists on our team, we have the medical providers, we have clinicians, we have peer support specialists, we have nurses and medical assistants. So there is a team supporting the patient um, and, and it's not just the, the medical provider working individually with the patient. And, and I think that, that really does make a difference because um, our uh, patients with medication-assisted treatments need many other supports in addition to the access to the medication itself. 
Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about uh, treatments available for for Connecticut residents who are, are dealing with substance use disorder. Again, uh, with us, Sabrina Trochi, President and CEO of Wheeler, also State Senator Saoud Anwar is here. Uh, you know, one other question uh, from Kathy when she'd asked about, you know, uh, Sabrina, what about non-medically oriented approaches? Uh, how do you answer that type of question? So for addiction treatment, um, there are many paths, and um, we have patients who medication-assisted treatments, in addition to the clinical behavioral health supports, um, are is what they need to um, to attain and sustain their recovery. We have under um, other individuals that work with us through our intensive outpatient programming, our um, outpatient programming, and um, and, and sustain recovery um, without the medications. So um, it, it really it's an individualized treatment. Medication assisted treatments do work. Um, and um, and they work for 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 individuals, and then there's other individuals who choose a different path to recovery. And we support individuals in making that determination and that decision. Uh, Senator Anwar, as we know, you're working to build community capacity, but I understand that you plan to introduce a New York model for harm reduction. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, uh, you know, New York uh, has become one of the first uh, parts in the country for a harm reduction strategy. It is just uh, recognizing that uh, there is an opportunity for safe injection sites. Um, the, the 1,500 people who had died, um, if we go back and say, how were some of those deaths preventable? The four people who are going to die in our state, can we prevent those deaths? And the answer to that is, yes, you can by a very pragmatic a common sense approach. What you say is don't use your drugs in your home alone or in a corner of a street alone. You can actually go to a safe site where you will be supervised. Nobody's going to judge you. You come and get your injection. And if the dose is higher, we will try and protect you and take care of you. This has worked in Europe. This has worked in Canada. And um, in the last six months when it was open in the, the New York uh, City of New York, they have seen 1,300 patients and, and some 22,000 or so episodes. And I had a meeting with them and, and just five individuals needed um, help from EMS uh, of five episodes. And, and, and many of those in the absence of this would have died. And, and, and so this is an area where there's an opportunity to save lives uh, and, and hopefully open the door as they go through their challenges and opportunities and then we can figure out a rehab plan at some stage but this is something that we have to really seek uh, um, uh, some more insight and then educate the community about the value of this Mm. that data is important uh, but uh, you know this has come up before i believe in our state especially from advocates who work with people with substance use disorder Uh, that approach is also controversial so how do you get your colleagues on board uh, with this idea senator anwar um i think it's education but also uh, look we are not going to be the first one to ever approach this uh this is uh, the, the there's robust data coming out of uh, parts of europe there's uh, data that's coming out of canada and there's now data coming out of new york and uh, um, there is no uh, evidence to support that it's increasing the drug use 
it is just there's evidence to support that we are saving lives. And, and if the goal of our society is to save lives and prevent death, uh, then people will get on board. And the next step is going to be, does that increase the likelihood of those individuals seeking support for validation? The answer to that is likely yes. And, and that would also open the door for a future opportunity. Look, um, uh, people are, are going through a, a disease. If you look at the substance use disorder and, and the impact of this, uh, there are so many ways we can prevent death and, and help take care of them. This is just one avenue that has been missing, but it does not mean that the entire spectrum of other treatments are going to go away. Uh, that's why I think it's something that we should all look at seriously as well. Again, that's State Senator Saud Anwar, who's also a medical doctor here with us on the show, acting chair of the Public Health Committee and chair of the Children's Committee. He's going to stay with us, but I want to thank Sabrina Trochi for joining us, president and CEO of Wheeler. Thank you, Sabrina, for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to get an update on how children's hospitals are responding to the pediatric mental health crisis and a shortage of inpatient beds to help them. Also, what are the community supports? More after a break. You can join us to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, a shortage of beds to treat Connecticut children in a mental health crisis has been an issue long before the pandemic. The problem grew worse over the last two years. Connecticut child advocate Sarah Egan told us recently, Connecticut Children's in Hartford has a dozen beds, but at times they had 50 children in its emergency department. And Connecticut Children's Hospital plans a new medical psychiatric care unit with increased bed capacity. Overcapacity has also been an issue at Yale Children's Hospital. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Cynthia Sparer, Executive Director of Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. So when we think about um, the emergency department at Yale Children's Hospital, also inpatient beds for children in a mental health crisis, what do you have available and what have you seen in the last two years? Yes, yeah, so I think you've uh, framed it exactly right. Uh, there is a long-standing commitment at our institution to a, a full range of child and adolescent psychiatric uh, facility. And uh, we are fortunate that we have 40 beds dedicated to children and adolescents uh, here. And uh, the, the, the problems with pediatric uh, behavioral health uh, certainly predate the pandemic. Uh, however, uh, this has really created uh, what some call a second pandemic, and that is what we're seeing in behavioral health. And the result is that uh, while we have always from time to time struggled with our uh, managing our beds and making sure that we're creating appropriate access to the needs of, uh, of children, adolescents requiring inpatient care, uh, what has occurred as a result of, uh, of COVID is that the uh, surge in the amount of children who really are experiencing serious uh, behavioral health crises has produced not only uh, a filling up of those 40 beds that we have, but the overflow into our emergency department, which on many days is seeing 
five, 10, 15, and more children in addition to the beds that we have filled. So it really has created uh, an enormous challenge for the families, for the children, and for our team here, our, our dedicated staff, our psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, really trying to manage uh, this, uh, this crisis. Mm. When we think about uh, the season right now, kids are getting out of school. I understand normally there would there be a, a, a less or fewer uh, uh, patients coming in. What are you seeing now, Cynthia? Yeah, uh, so there has uh, traditionally, again, pre, pre-pandemic, been a seasonality uh, to the peaks in demand for um, uh, crisis intervention and ultimately admission uh, to the hospital for those children that require it. Uh, and normally it would occur in the fall uh, when the kids come back to school. There are lots of issues that get triggered uh, as schools reopen in the fall. And so we would see a surge in the fall. And then you see it again in the spring. Uh, That is not the pattern now. And so while many schools are now out uh, and others are, uh, the warm weather is here, kids get outside, we're still seeing our beds full and our emergency department filled with children who we're housing in the ED uh, who need access to um, uh, to inpatient care. So the seasonality pre-COVID, is, that pattern is no longer continuing. And in fact, um, uh, we're continuing to see those children in our emergency department in addition to those who are in our beds. Mm. You'd mentioned the 40 bed capacity. And so if a, a child again is, is at the hospital in crisis, you know, what is the typical wait time for those who, who need to be um, hospitalized? Uh, That can range in some cases hours and in some cases days, and in some cases it can extend beyond a week. Um, And uh, that is uh, really the reality. Now, some of that is influenced. Sometimes we've had COVID-positive children who cannot be introduced into uh, the inpatient environment because of infection prevention uh, reasons. But in other cases, it's simply there is not an available bed to place them. And we do segment our younger children from our adolescents. So we want to make sure that the um, environment is appropriate for the age. And that's another challenge. We can't take um, seven and eight and nine-year-olds and put them with 14 and 15-year-olds. The needs are very different. The group activities are very different. So there's a lot to consider in how we uh, utilize uh, inpatient bed capacity. Uh, but when they wind up in the emergency department, it's really uh, not an environment that is best for these children who need, uh, need care. So I, I really uh, think that the conversation we've been having this morning about uh, we need to balance both what's going on within our hospital facilities with what the care and access to the care as early as possible in the community. And so it's really looking at that continuum that's, uh, that's critical. So you don't have uh, plans to increase beds, but you're saying more investment needs to be allocated towards community support so that children aren't getting to this crisis point, Cynthia? I think it's working both ends of it. You're exactly right. There is the the front end, if you will, and I really agree with the conversation you've been having this morning about working with community pediatricians, with uh, primary care clinics and other providers of primary care uh, to really flag uh, situations early and get 
uh, children and families the care that they need uh, as early as possible and helping to support pediatricians, support primary care clinics uh, to be able to have access uh, to, first of all, to identify and then to uh, get those resources available, be they social work, psychology, and other uh, important resources. So I think that's the front end. At the back end, we wind up at times we will have the beds, but sometimes our beds are not being used most efficiently because we wind up with discharge problems. So simply adding beds doesn't really allow for appropriate, man appropriate management of the continuum. If we have children who are ready to come out of the hospital, but either need community resources in order to manage them safely uh, at home, or uh, for those children who have longer term care needs, uh, really needing something other than an acute environment uh, to be able to uh, provide the long-term care that they that they require. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not only having the beds, but using them most efficiently. Uh, that is a challenge. Well, when we think about the community pediatricians, the community supports that you mentioned, for children who need outpatient care, do insurance plans cover it, Cynthia? <laughs> so that is a very important question you're asking. And the answer is it's highly variable. Um, about 50 52% of our children are Medicaid insured, so Medicaid plays a critical role. Uh, and then among commercial insurers, there is such variation in what gets covered from zero to um, very reasonable coverage. So uh, it's a, uh, it is highly uh, variable, and that, that's a challenge for our clinical teams as well. Uh, as well as uh, as the um, resources in the community, because people don't want to treat children and adolescents differently based on their on their uh, pay payer status, uh, and so it, it it but it is a real issue. State Senator Saud Anwar is still with us, who's chair of the Children's Committee. Uh, so time to apply more pressure on the insurance companies, Senator Anwar. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can tell you that uh, what we had seen or experienced as a state uh, during the pandemic with the children in the emergency room, uh, I can tell you the entire legislature, the governor's office took that as a very, very important, serious uh, issue in our state. And we had worked hard to put some $300 million to try and have a comprehensive strategy going forward as a state um, to look at uh, uh, workforce issue. To, to look at um, how we can have a payment reform and also look at the gaps uh, that uh, Cynthia uh, has, has talked about uh, in the outpatient setting along with Sabrina had touched on as well. Now the insurance part, we've actually asked for a study to look at the parity and, and, and uh, as a Medicaid, we have been pushing for Medicaid to increase their reimbursement as well for the services uh, compared to the, where they were before and have a, a, a long-term plan because if we stop focusing on sustainability of support, in other words, paying appropriate amount to the people for the work that they're doing, we are not going to be able to solve this long-term. And, and these are all our priority and uh, the work with insurance companies always uh, partially done and we have more to do. Before we run out of time, uh, we had a caller from Southington, Don, who uh, wanted to touch on our, our previous segment, Senator Anwar, uh, talking about the shortage for behavioral health clinicians and others in our state incentives uh, to help uh, boost that workforce. His question, what's being done in 
national licensure, difficult to move given different requirements state to state, anything being done about a national license that can make it easier for providers to move and work in different states. What can you tell them? Sure. Uh, with respect to uh, the reciprocity agreements across states, uh, because the licensure is always done through the state. So uh, that's why, if, but if you look at the number of states who are working collaboratively, we are moving in that direction. We have not reached that, and that will require a federal law to reach that. But uh, with respect to this particular issue, uh, literally there are multiple different states in our neighborhood, but beyond who are uh, saying that the Connecticut license is going to be acceptable to them and vice versa. And, and and so we have stepped in that direction, uh, but it's uh, in 20 to 30 other states rather than all 50 states right now. But that's a federal bill, and maybe we'll get to that point. If I could just uh, piggyback on that. Uh, so I serve on the Public Policy Committee for the Children's Hospital Association. Could not agree more with uh, Dr. Anwar, and it's something that we are spending a great deal of time uh, as uh, on a national basis uh, among children's hospitals to advocate for exactly what he's just described. I think the question being asked by your caller is a very important one. And so uh, I couldn't agree more that we need to work on this both within the state, but also as a national issue. And it is an important policy issue. Um, I, I think the other uh, thing I, I would just want to add is that going back to the community is that a lot of our work right now is also trying to look at the primary care being provided to children uh, and having embedded behavioral health in those primary care practices. And we do have some wonderful collaborations with two of our federally qualified health center partners where we're doing just that. So I think um, there is an opportunity not to think of behavioral health as a segmented part of healthcare delivery, but actually an integrated part uh, with the prevention, primary care and behavioral care all uh, being provided in a holistic way. And I think we have lots of opportunity to uh, continue to advance that work as well. You've been hearing Cynthia Sparer here on Where We Live, Executive Director of Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Cynthia, thank, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Also with us, uh, State Senator Saoud Anwar, Acting Chair of the Public Health Committee and Chair of the Children's Committee. Thank you for your perspective as always, Senator. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Katie Tularski was our technical director. Tomorrow we'll be back with a show about youth sports. We hope you join us. <laughs>